0: Great to see you. Wherever you may be joining us today, here on campus or live stream, we're glad to be together. I'm gonna miss it. I've been pretty deep in the Sermon on the Mount all summer. I've been listening to it, I've been reading it, I've been thinking about it, been praying about it. And so today is our last Sunday of it. And I know some of you are thinking, well, it doesn't mean you don't have to ever pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount again. And that's true. But it's just not quite the same. What I want to do today is do a little bit of summarizing. What is this whole beautiful teaching from Jesus about that he's giving us? And then I want to bring us to some verses that are Jesus' way of concluding the sermon. So I wonder if you ever think about this, about your life. There's a lot of mystery to it. There's a lot in your life over which you have no control. And yet you are here to live it. You're participating in it. What do I mean by that? When you are born, you had nothing to do with that. You had no influence, no control. You had nothing to do with that. I don't know if you ever wondered about it, you know. I mean, I'm back from vacation, so I've had some sort of walk-in-the-woods kind of ruminations. And they're like, Why was I born when I was born? What if I was born 400 years ago? What about a thousand years ago? What about 500 years from now? The mystery of when you were born, none of us had anything to do with that. You're just born into the time, place, and context you're born into, and you're invited to live it. Another thing is you had nothing to do with where you were born. Most of us were born in the US, some of us other places, What if you were born in South America or Africa or Asia? None of us had anything to do with where we were born. And the when is going to have huge impact on your life. What's the world like? And the where is going to have huge impact on your life. The other thing we had absolutely nothing to do with is the who is the family that brought you into the world. None of us chose our family. We just showed up one day into the family that God used to bring us into the world. So the when you're born, the where you're born, the who are your people and your family, these are massively significant in the experience of the living of our lives, and we have absolutely zero capacity to influence those. We just got what we got. So one of my favorite prayer writers is a guy named John Bailey. He has a book of daily prayers. And in one of his morning entries, he says this beautiful phrase, Lord, I greet you at the beginning of this new day. And I ask you to guide me and walk with me into the mystery and invitation that is my life. The mystery and the invitation that is my life. There's a lot of mystery, a lot of stuff that we had nothing to do with. And yet, We're called to just live it. But there is one of these, you know, the old who, what, when, where, why, how, that string of words. We had nothing to do with the when or the where or the who. But we have a great deal to do with the how. The how is one of the biggest questions of our living. How will you live your life? How will you do it? I know you got the context you got, the when you had nothing to do with, the who you had nothing to do with, the where you had nothing to do with, but the how, you have an incredible participatory influence on the how. And it has to do with the choices that we make. It has to do with our priorities, how we arrange our lives, what we pursue. And I guess you know this, but every single day you are building and constructing your life. Every single day you're constructing it. And as the days accumulate and one leads to another and the weeks to months and years, your life is being built and lived and experienced. Every single day we're building that life on our priorities. We're building that life on what we deem worth going after, what we think is important. And you know this, but there are so many different ways to do it. There's so many different ways to do it. So the question is, how will you do it? How will you live your life? What will you prioritize? What will be the focal points? What will be central? How will you live your life? The way you live your life, of course, you will experience. The way you live your life will influence other people. The way you live your life will leave a legacy. In so many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ teaching us how to live a human life. And so we remember perhaps that at the very beginning of the sermon, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the hillside. He sat down, as rabbis did, giving attention to the scriptures, and he taught them. Only with this teaching, the rabbi of rabbis is creating the scriptures in what he teaches. And so we have a bit of a chronological gap between right this moment and the moment that he actually delivered the sermon, but we're there. We're in it. We're among the crowds. The only difference is a little bit of chronology, but we're among the crowds to whom Jesus is teaching, and he begins with the word blessed. And he lays out this most remarkable, history-changing, world-changing sermon. Let me read for you a little bit of Matthew chapter 7. It's the conclusion of Jesus' words. We're going to come to it a little bit later, but it's laying the framework. Jesus concludes the sermon by giving us pictures of two different people, two different ways that they live their lives two different ways of constructing, prioritizing, devoting your energy, your time, your focus, and two different results. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a crash, a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. To go through a bit of summarizing, because I think it's really worth us together as a community kind of coalescing around the main ideas once again as we wrap it up. The Sermon on the Mount is invitation and its instruction, but it is not a pass fail test. And if you're inclined to read it as a pass fail test, and you read the towering invitations to virtuous living, if you read it as a pass fail test, you're most likely to dismiss it. Because if you read it as a pass-fail test, you're going to, excuse me, (coughs) you're going to read a couple of sections, and you're going to say, there's no way I can do that. I mean, what are you thinking? Like, no possible way I could do that. And so if you read it as a pass-fail test, you'll just dismiss it. But it's not a pass-fail test. If you're thinking, I will never be good enough to meet that standard, the core of the idea of the sermon is, Jesus is your good enough. Jesus is your good enough. So don't spend all your energy spinning your wheels on, am I good enough? Do I live up to the standard? Can I reach it? As though it's a pass-fail test. None of us are going to reach the towering virtues of the heights of this message. Jesus is your and my good enough. But if we understand it to be an invitation into God-centered, God-given life, then we find our way into this inviting place of Jesus teaching us how to live a human experience. The old covenant, Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives, if you're familiar with the scriptures, he receives the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God He goes up on the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments. The Old Covenant is teaching God's people how to live, how what to do in their living. No coincidence that Jesus is now going to give us the foundation of the ethic of the New Covenant, and we get the same wording. He goes up on a mountain, and then he teaches the people the New Covenant. The New Covenant teaches us how to be. The Old Covenant taught us what to do, and that's worth noting. It's not valueless. The Old Covenant teaches us what to do. But here's what we all know. We are all capable of doing things that give an impression that's different than the quality of our interior world. And so doing things matters, but what Jesus is going to bring us to in the New Covenant teaching is he's going to bring us to a deeper place of what's actually going on inside of us? What is the inner world that produces the outer actions? And so the new covenant is about how to be, whereas the old covenant was more focused on what to do. And so Jesus begins teaching. What Jesus is teaching is the good life. When I say that, the last thing I have in my mind is the American dream in this teaching. When I say he's teaching us the good life, I do not mean that this is anything close to the millions of books that are sold in every bookseller about how to have your best life, how to have the great life, how to have the successful life, how to achieve greatness. It's not anything like that. When we use the word the good life, we're talking about good in the very essential nature of what it means. A life of goodness. A good life that is founded on the right things, that doesn't miss the point. Right? You know this, but it is possible to live an entire human life and miss the point entirely. So when Jesus is teaching us this ethic, this way, this intimacy with God, he's teaching us how to live the good life, the life of goodness, in quality, in meaning, in experience, and in impact. There are millions of books, as you know, about how to live your best life. In our culture, most of that is going to be about success, money, or appearance. The books are about things like money, diet, beauty. There are books that say, Six secrets to ripped abs so you can have your best life. Like, ripped abs is going to be your best life. How to make sure you have a full head of hair to live your best life. There's so much of that stuff peddled in our culture. You may know it, but the most recent statistics I could find, in the most generalized way of describing it, is that life expectancy for an American female is 79 years, an American male is 73 years. Okay, so how are you going to do that? How are you going to do the 79 and the 73? So a little nod to Kyle, I was watching a football game yesterday while I'm thinking about this, and I had the 79 and the 73, and how are you going to live that life? And about the time that thought formulated in my mind, a quarterback was barking out the words of getting ready to snap the ball. So hang with me, it's a little weird, but all I could think of was, 79, 73, how? <laughs> but it helps me. I'll say a bunch in this sermon, but a week from now, all you might remember was 79, 73, how? (laughs) I forgot hike. (laughs) How are you going to do it? How are you going to build your life? There are millions of books in our culture that are teaching you how to have your best life. Most of them will be about success, money, and appearance. Here is the author of life. Not the author of books, the author of life, teaching us how to live life. And there's nothing in it about appearances or ripped abs or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount pretty closely, it would be reasonable to conclude that Jesus is anti-appearance. In other words, there's so much content in the Sermon on the Mount that says, stop spending your energy on how you look on what your life looks like, on how people will observe it. Spend your energy on the quality of what's going on in the interior. 79, 73, how? So as I was reading through the sermon again, I came to a conclusion that I think there's three main ideas, three big ones. One of them is relationships, particularly reconciled relationships, relationships. That is relationship with God, relationship with people. The sermon is about life in the kingdom of God. And I've shared in the past, but I think it's worth reiterating. I once heard somebody say the kingdom of God is the kingdom of reconciled relationships. So the sermon is about reconciled relationships. It's about intimacy. But when I use the word intimacy, what I mean is sincerity and honesty. No faking the realness of what it means to be a human being. So it's about relationships, it's about intimacy, and it's about priority. And here, relationships, intimacy, priority, Jesus Christ is teaching us how to live our lives. And as I'm writing this down on my paper, I couldn't help but see the acronym develop of RIP. <laughs> Relationship, intimacy, and priority, RIP. And as Jesus is teaching us this, to us people who are worried, broken, frenetic, anxious, depressed, this teaching is rest in peace living. You can live a way that you can rest in peace as you live your life. You can be at rest. Your identity is secure. Jesus Christ and his gospel and his bloodshed and his forgiveness and his complete adoption for you means that you are a beloved son and daughter of God. You don't need to keep trying to prove everybody how valuable you are. God has secured your identity in this way. You can rest in the peace of that. And when we live this life of the sermon in reconciled relationships and intimacy and priority, we can have rest in peace living that leads us to rest in peace for our eternity. A rest in peace life versus an anxious, worried, frenetic life. I can't think of words that describe our culture much more accurately than anxious, worried, frenetic living. Living. And so here Jesus is teaching us what I'll call a simple life. But when I say a simple life, some people might hear that and it sounds pejorative to you, like, well, you didn't have much meaning to it and you didn't have much going on, that kind of thing. That's not at all what I mean. When I mean that Jesus is teaching us a simple life, he's teaching us how to focus on what matters. He's teaching us how to live with God and with people and how to arrange the priorities of our lives So the construction project day in and day out yields a life of wholeness and meaning and influence and leaves a legacy of love and grace. So this simple focused life, it's not about how much money you have, whether you have a lot or little. It's not about that. It's about things that mean more than that. Gary Thomas says simplicity ties life together. Simplicity brings eternity into our time and helps us use time for eternity. It gives us strength to do what we must do as citizens of the earth, but it liberates us to live as citizens of heaven. This teaching in the sermon is teaching that brings wholeness into a broken world. We live with such fragmentation, such contentiousness. And when Jesus is giving us the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us wholeness. In a sense, you could say wellness. Not so much in the normal, modern way we hear that word peddled. But a healed and whole life looks like this. This rest in peace living as Jesus is teaching it to us in the Sermon on the Mount. In a world full of contentiousness, Jesus is teaching us how to live in wholeness. And here's one of the things that I feel quite certain of. If we live this way, this God-focused, God-prioritized, God-first relational life, we're not going to fit. You're not going to fit. You're going to find many, many times, ways and places where you just feel like, I just don't fit here in this scenario, in this culture, in this value system, in this political environment. You're just going to find that you don't fit because the sermon is based on the values of heaven and its wholeness, and it's speaking to people who are living in the fractured, fearful brokenness of the world. That would be all of us. And so we're going to find that the more we pursue living this simple God-focused life, we should not be surprised that we start thinking, I just don't feel like I fit. I think, you can disagree with me, of course, but I think if we live this kind of life, we'll find politically we don't fit. You'll be too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals. You'll find that you don't fit the normal partisanship categories because those categories are now about politics. And this is not about politics. This is about the good life of goodness, of simple clarity, of focused, our living and our priorities on God. It is wholeness over brokenness. It is security over insecurity. And how we human beings would live our lives in that environment. It's peace over fear. It's contentment over appearances and striving for people's applause. This sermon emphasizes that you don't use religion. You don't use it. If we use religion, if we use God, we will use people. And we live in the USA, the great culture of bright lights and neon signs and the Vegas Strip, and get famous And this sermon, the values of it are so different than all of that. We live in a culture that says, get the attention, get the celebrity, get the recognition. Jesus is teaching a life with God that has such an intimate union that most of it is incognito. He teaches us to go into a quiet place and pray and don't do it for show. He teaches us not to live a public religious life when we know that it's different than the reality of the lives that we've got going on in our hearts. And you know what really strikes me about this? Here's Jesus, God in the flesh, teaching us to live much of this incognito. And I thought, you know what? God does most of his work incognito. God doesn't send an advanced team that says, hey, I'm about to show up and do something big, call the crowd, get the posters, something big's about to happen and I'm going to show you who I am and what I can do. Most of the time, God works incognito. He doesn't have a need to be recognized, to be applauded, to gain celebrity. He operates out of complete identity, security, and wholeness. And so God often works incognito. For those of you who know the New Testament, think about how many times Jesus does something and then he says, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Just don't tell them. Just keep it quiet. And they're like, how can we not tell anyone? He's like, Shh, it's on the DL. We're not going public with this. In Matthew chapter nine, a couple chapters after the Sermon on the Mount concludes, in Matthew seven, we have Jesus healing actually raising from the dead a young girl who is described as the daughter of the synagogue ruler. When he gets to the guy's house, there's a huge crowd there. And he sends the crowd away. And then he goes privately into the room and he raises the girl. Dale Brunner remarks on this. He says, if Jesus had been a showman, he would have challenged the disbelievers to come into the room rather than get out of it so that he could prove to them what he could do. I'll show you something you've never seen before. But for Jesus, healing is not a show, it's not even intended to be an advertisement or an attraction. And we Americans who are raised in the world of celebrity and attraction scratch our heads. We're like, Jesus, you're missing so much opportunity. There's a business opportunity in this, Jesus. There's so much that we could leverage this for. All of that is so different than the values of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the other thing is, the Sermon on the Mount is communal. He's teaching a crowd of people, and the teaching uses the plural of the pronouns. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, which we have in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus prays, he teaches us how to pray. You know the words. Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. It's very communal. To live this life in Sermon on the Mount values and simplicity and focus, we need each other to do it. We need each other to do it. We need each other to experience the joy of it, to grow in the meaning of it, to celebrate in the worship and the gratitude to God for it. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a communal thing. Here's my guess. My guess is many of us have prayed the Lord's Prayer many times, and you know the words, our Father, forgive us our sins, give us this day our daily bread. I bet you use the plural, but I bet you think singular. I bet when you pray it, what you're thinking is my father who art in heaven, give me this day, my daily bread, forgive me my sins, but it's communal. And the sermon on the Mount has woven into it the value of a community of people who seek God together. All right. So I'm going to close briefly with Jesus' comparison at the very end. The whole thing is coming to a conclusion. Jesus has been teaching. Likely he had been teaching for a couple of days, right? I mentioned this earlier on. This sermon, Matthew 5, 6, 7, is probably a compendium highlight reel of about two or three days of teaching. The crowds had gathered from all over the place, and they wouldn't do that to come for a 20-minute sermon. It was kind of a teaching festival, so to speak, where Jesus is the teacher. And after all this teaching The focus, the values, the priorities, the relationship, the intimacy, the priorities. Jesus closes by giving an example of two lives. Like, remember, 79, 73, how? The first one is a wise man who hears the words and puts them into practice. And Jesus says, this person, when the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, that house didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The foundation on the rock, there's no doubt in my mind that when Jesus is speaking of rock, he's speaking of God. In Psalm 18:2, this phrase appears, and phrases that mean essentially the same thing appear about 25 times through the Psalms. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. This is a person who builds their life on the rock, who builds their life on God. This person hears the words and puts them into practice. That's a very important distinction Jesus is making because the next person is everyone who hears the words and does not put them into practice. Hears the words, participates in religion, but all the words and all that participation have no life change, no impact. My life is not getting adjusted, changed, or impacted in any significant way. I know lots of religious words. Sometimes we got a million Bible studies. Sometimes I think the issue is not that we need more Bible studying, but we need more Bible doing. Jesus says, this person hears my words and doesn't put them into practice. So to keep hearing the words and not putting them into practice is to keep doing religion with no impact or result. And that person, he says, when the rains come, the, ste- the streams rise and the winds blow. That house falls with a great crash. I can't get around the fact that the word great in Greek is mega. That person's life falls with a mega crash. And I can't help but think in our culture, so many of us are struggling trying to hold our lives together. The pressures, the value systems, the contortions and contentions. And Jesus is inviting us to this simple focal point of living for him. Ezekiel has a prophecy. It says, then they come to you as a group. They sit down right in front of you as if they were my people, as if they were my people. They hear your words and then they don't do what you say because they're seeking only their own desires. They pursue ill-gotten prophets and they keep following their own self-interests. So Jesus is saying the wise man, note that there's not a moralizing here. He doesn't say the good man does this and the bad man does this. He says the wise man does it this way, builds their life on the rock. 79, 73, how? Builds their life on the rock. And the foolish man hears the words, but doesn't do anything. They have no real impact. Doesn't change their living in any particular way. Overall, what Jesus is teaching is the blessed life. And when I say that, I do not mean the life of prosperity and health, happiness, and all of that American value system. What I mean is the life of living close to God. That's what he's teaching. In the New Testament, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed life is the close to God life. So whatever brings you closer to God is a blessing. It's a quest for God. It's not a quest for greatness. Dale Bruner finally says, the quest for greatness rather than for righteousness, for the sensational rather than the simple, for doing the charismatic rather than the moral, for speaking prophetically rather than compassionately, for being up to date at all costs rather than a loyal disciple of Jesus in all cases is a quest that will end only by a different kind of a great, a great crash. So at the end of the sermon, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. If you read further in Matthew chapter 8, we begin to see Jesus moving outward. The sermon is over. The crowds are dispersing. And the sermon on the mount becomes the sermon on the move. And you know what the first thing is that Jesus does? He heals. He heals and makes people whole. So, all that Jesus is teaching is also all that Jesus is doing. And the Sermon on the Mount becomes a sermon on the move in the life of our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus Christ, we'll never be able to thank you enough for all that you've done for us, for how you have secured our life as sons and daughters. And now, Lord, for each of us with our own story, our own thoughts and feelings about what we've just heard, would you, Holy Spirit, speak to each of us and draw us closer, closer to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.